Tell me your soldier's story. Why? Because your unique experience is an opportunity to share lessons learned. What are the sustains? Where are there opportunities to improve? No, we don't get the opportunity to go back and do it again, but a quick reflection before moving forward can make all the difference. So I've compiled this list for you. 10 things designed to help the traveler along their way. 10 common practices to use for your analysis. Number one, a human receives two educations, the one given to them and the one they give themselves. Number two, everything in life worth having is free. So be careful of those who will monetize love, health, and knowledge. Number three, love is the answer. Translating the question so all can understand, that's the problem. Number four, health is a trinity of mind, body, and spirit, and wealth is the karma of what you do with them. Pursuing the monetized while neglecting the free things in life will leave you poor, sick, and lonely. Number five, knowledge is power, and with power comes great responsibility. Demand the most of those responsible for that knowledge transfer, because with them lies the power. Number six, everything in life is a mirror. Look for beauty, and beauty is what you'll find. Look for flaws, and flaws are what you will find. So look long and look deep. Number seven, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. The beholder is you. So look long and look deep. Number eight, paying it forward is as important as saving for a rainy day because the investment you make in others pays in perpetuity. Number nine, truth, facts, and principles are constants that change. Never be so tied to constants that you can't change. And number 10, the list of life is never complete. Start making a list, cross things off, celebrate, and then make another list. The key is never skipping the celebration. This month, we'll look at educational research. Why research? Because it's a major part of the educational journey that service members sometimes miss out on. But service members belong in research. The grit that principal investigators dream about, we get a go at that station. So I've invited not one, but two Naval officers to help shed light on the path and application of applied and academic research. Take a listen. Team Navy is joining us to share wisdom and knowledge. Lieutenant Wade B. De Silva. Now, you have an interesting story. You were a commission officer with the Navy, but you served on the dark side. You spent some time with the Army as a 71 Foxtrot, right? Well, kind of. I was in the Navy officially, and 71 Foxtrot is, is the Army equivalent of what my rate is in the Navy. The majority of my career was spent at you know, joint bases working predominantly with Army and Marines because of the kind of research that I was in charge of carrying out. And because of the kind, are you evading like some line of questioning? No, what type no, of research? It's, it's um, so, as everybody listening knows, we have a big TBI, concussion, PTSD problem. So with the issues that we had with IEDs, post-concussion syndrome, PTSD, all those things, there was a joint effort to look into one what the causes were what we can do to address it and who's actually being affected and we are further behind than we should be and military concussions are not at all like nfl concussions because our issues stem from the weapons mm. so for a large number of people the weapons we use can cause damage down the line especially with how often we train or deploy etc every gun essentially is a an explosion being discharged sometimes in close proximity to your head 
And that's interesting because I was thinking about, you know, like cannons and I was thinking about the pressure and sound. And I'm like, how far away do I need to be that I can still consider myself part of the team? (laughs) That's the question. So the fun part of the job for me was I had to go experience all these weapons firsthand to see, you know, what exactly are people being exposed to. And the people who handle these weapons on a daily basis can tell you the quote unquote safe places to be. Let's be real. There is no safe place. The body wasn't designed to be in that kind of proximity to a weapon being discharged that often, as often as we need to do it in order to be proficient. Brain in combat, overpressures experienced from flashbang devices. Ah, uh, that is probably, that sounds like a Kamamori paper. That I mm, you're, you're published author, too. Well, that, that's one of the requirements of the job. It's information that, you know, anybody in one of those jobs in the military, which, you know, if you fire a weapon, you should be paying attention to what the effects are on your body and ways to mitigate it. Ear Pro, please use it, even though it's not always the most convenient thing because we are still using old stuff that doesn't allow us to communicate properly and preserve our hearing. But as I was just looking at these things yesterday and more and more there are earbuds that will allow you to communicate and protect your hearing. Right. I uh, have some that are for concerts Mm -hmm. that will absorb the excess sound. Exactly. But still allow clarity of, you know, the performance through. So we're talking about your writing, technical writing, academic writing. I'm taking a look at your LinkedIn profile. Anybody that Mm -hmm. wants to check you out, should go check out your LinkedIn profile. University is the only thing online about me, actually, at this point. There's a couple of things I found. Oh, I'm slipping then because you know, I thought the Navy taught me well to scrub my stuff. But Clean that up. Yes. So I have the University of Southern California Certification in Regulatory Affairs. Yes, Morgan State. Morgan State, go Bears, a BS in Psychology, Naval Postgraduate School, Master's of Business Administration, and Vanderbilt University, a PhD in Neuroscience and Pharmacology. And you uh, were Dean's Graduate Fellowship. Tell me about that. That was basically paying for grad school at Vanderbilt. Part of it is that, you know, I was a minority scientist coming out of undergrad and we're still very much so underrepresented. And as part of my training, in return, I worked in the lab, essentially. But without it, yeah, would not be going to Vanderbilt. The first time I was made aware of exactly how much those classes cost, I came to appreciate that fellowship quite a bit. I hear you. And a lot of people, like scholarship, fellowship, internship, all these different pathways that one can take into higher education. What can a young person do to prepare themselves to be competitive or those financial opportunities to buffer that cost of higher education? I remember correctly, there's always some kind of academic performance requirement. So they're going to look at your GPAs and need recommendations from people. So as boring as that class may be and as useless as it may seem, those grades do matter. You want to show that you're capable of academic performance because those fellowships that, you know, will cover your grad school expenses and sometimes pay you, which that one did, literally for going to school and working in the lab. Now, it wasn't a great deal of money, but they do look at your academic performance because they are making an investment in you. And they don't want to make an investment in you, even if it's just for a year, knowing that this person may not be able to make it past this year. And as a minority and as a veteran, you're going to be dealing with some kind of stigma about your academic capabilities and your ability to perform. And hopefully that's a lot less prevalent than it used to be, especially in terms of veterans, because I think more academic institutions and more corporations have experience with veterans to know exactly how well we are capable of performing. 
certainly under adverse situations and you know and how resilient we are so that hopefully that's no longer sticking that we have to deal with. those grades do matter having an advocate which is a uh, who can not necessarily grease his kids for you but providing a good recommendation in terms of you know these recommendation letters that are always required for these scholarships scholarships or just getting into grad school in the first place. You want somebody who is respected, hopefully well-known, which means you need to network in whatever field that you're looking to go into ahead of time to have those people in your corner. I, I think that sounds a lot like greasing the skids. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. I mean, unfortunately, you know, you want your own performance and your own abilities to, you know, your own merits to be able to speak for you. But this is still a who you know type world. You have to make sure that you are actually making those contacts and maintaining them. If one wanted to get into research, let's say high school or even while they're an undergrad, what's the recommendation? Experience. So not just your resume looks good, but you need to figure out whether you like research. As a veteran coming into research, like after your, your period of service has ended, I definitely say you're going to be a little better prepared for the rigors of research than say maybe your average undergrad or somebody else who hasn't had experience with it because a lot of it is failure. We used to joke around in the lab that you know you got to get used to little victories like small things going right well need to be enough to sustain you because a lot of what you do is not going to work especially when you're trying to deal with a new problem right you're, you're trying to deal with something or discover something that nobody else has worked on before and there's not necessarily going to be a roadmap for you to follow. You're literally going to be the pioneer trying to figure out, I have this problem, how do I fix it? Enlisted in the military, that is usually your daily, daily routine. Failure is a daily right. thing. <laughs> the manual says this, but nothing in the manual is making any sense right now because this problem is not listed. But I need this particular piece of machinery, whether it be a firearm or a vehicle, to work. How do you fix it? What I'm hearing from everything you said is like five things. So number one academic performance. It's important. Two, have a sponsor. Identify someone that is going to help you grease those skids. Number three, embrace teamwork. Am I, am, I, am I good so far? Absolutely. Number four, know your mission or your problem. And number five, be comfortable with failure. Absolutely. As long as it's not your failure to act, then yeah, don't be comfortable with that. But if you know an experiment doesn't work, not everything is going to be 100%. That's why Applied science is different from academic science. In applied science, failure is not really something new because there's somebody's life or somebody's outcome that literally is hanging on the balance of, we need to get this right. My desire going into grad school and, and immediately after was that I wanted to teach. I wanted to be a professor. I wanted to teach everybody from other grad students and postdoctoral students to eighth grade students. So that was my dream. But unfortunately, those doors weren't open at the time. So what I started to do is look for other avenues where, you know, my education would actually make a difference and I could go into applied sciences. So I'm not an academic researcher in terms of research strictly for the, on the basis of knowledge. I mean, I love that, but it's kind of selfish. I'd like to see it applied as soon as possible. So I, I took that position in regulatory affairs because it kept me in science, but that particular corporation or institute was a tissue bank. They were doing really fantastic work with you know donated human tissue and changing that into products like spine grafts and things like that that people needed you know to live essentially so even then i was really about the mission and that first dip into corporate america wasn't really what i liked it was a little too corporate so at that point and i think actually maybe even 
before taking that position, I had contacted the Navy and the Army, actually, about, you know, commissioning, because to me, it seemed like one of the few places where teamwork really mattered. That was probably the happiest I, I was in my life as an athlete in college was in a team environment. I thought, you know, okay, if you're going to be happy in the rest of your life, you need to get back to the kind of environment that you have. The Army wanted to make me a health care administrator, which I was not trained for. So that didn't make any sense. The Navy offered me a position as a research psychologist. What was it like for you growing up? Because academically, you sound like you're very focused. So somebody at home was like, read a book. So I was born in D.C., but my first memories were growing up in Nigeria. So we, we moved there probably when I was about three. Yes, academics are really driven home focused. One, because school's not free there. There's an investment that's taking place and you can't waste it. I haven't been a stickler for academic performance. And that's not necessarily a good thing because I'm kind of lucky that I got where I am with that attitude. I love learning and love taking in knowledge and the actual gaining of knowledge in school. But in terms of things like homework, yeah, I was horrible with homework in high school. Not because I was not capable of doing it, but there was so much other life to do. I go outside and do all these other things. And that did come back to kind of bite me a little bit. I managed to get through that, get into college and all those things because I had people advocating for me saying, oh, this is a smart kid or whatever. He just doesn't do homework. So his GPA doesn't necessarily reflect his capability. Please don't take that route. <laughs> Long road. <laughs> Long, yeah, that, you don't want to do that in college, undergrad, anything. Don't take that route. It's not, I wouldn't advise it. There's too many, there's too many pitfalls associated. A little time with the Army, a lot of time with the Navy. You're right in Philly. Army-Navy game. Whose shirt do you wear? Well, since I didn't go to either of the academies, you know, my Why does that matter? Why does oh, that matter? Have you ever talked to an academy grad? Oh, my God. I remember one of my last deals was talking trash about the Army-Navy game because, you know, Navy had won, like, some number of games in a row. The day before the game, she was talking trash. I can't remember exactly what she said. But I do remember the Army uniforms being very nice that year. Probably 82nd like, Airborne. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, don't underestimate the power of feeling good about yourself. Those uniforms are badass. I'm looking at them like, I wouldn't mind putting that on. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and sure enough, they beat Navy. The one Army guy at the base got the top trash for a year, and they won again the next year. So I don't even know what the streak is at this point. So I guess you're asking me if I'm going to pick one or who would I be going for? Why not? Let's make it fun. Ooh, okay. This year it might be esports. <laughs> <laughs> right. We're going to be playing the equivalent of Madden, right? Who yeah. has the fastest fingers? <laughs> um, in that case, I'm picking Air Force because their internet connection is probably uh, It is not SATCOM. It is not SATCOM. So, Lieutenant Wade B. De Silva, thank you for joining us on the third lieutenant. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Commander Melissa R. Troncoso is a doctoral candidate at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences and a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar. She received her Bachelor's of Science in Nursing from the University of Michigan and her Master's of Science in Nursing from the University of the Health Sciences, where she's currently pursuing her PhD. In 2010, Commander Troncoso served as officer in charge of a Joint Operation Cooperative Medical Assistance Team during Operation Enduring Freedom. As a family nurse practitioner with over 18 years of experience leading and caring for service members and their families, she's been given the nickname, the Health Whisperer. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I've been waiting for today. (laughs) You 
here. We are here. <laughs> and and that's how every day kind of feels under the pandemic. It's we're you know <laughs> we're here. Welcome to this space. I've been eager to share it with you. The health and wellness of both physical and mental sides of every person seems to be so critical right now, to the point where we're labeling it self-care. So tell me your sailor story. So my sailor story began NJ ROTC, so Junior Reserve Officer Training Corps in high school, and was just drawn to customs, courtesies, tradition, the whole military aspect of doing drills and following rules and being a part of a collective group that was structured, I think. And so that was my introduction. And I had an instructor who said, you know, you should go on to be a naval officer. You should, you know, join the Navy. And I said, well, I don't know if I want to do that for real. This was fun, you know, twirling rifles and such. But he was really my catalyst. And he encouraged me to apply for ROTC scholarship. So the Reserve Officer Training Corps for University. And he encouraged me to go to the nurse corps. I was thinking, what exactly would I do in the Navy? You know, ships and all those things seemed really great, but that wasn't like, Hmm, is that really what I want to do? And he said, well, they have, you know, the nurse corps. And I said, I've always been drawn to helping people, to serving people and just being there. And it seemed like a great opportunity. And so I applied and the rest is somewhat history. That was my introduction coming in. Right. Ordinarily, you see a doctor, you look to the doctor for the diagnosis or prognosis, but the nurse is who you see all the time. How has it been for you and your your peer nurses in this space right now? So I'm glad that you said that. I think when people think of nurses, they're always there, right? And nursing touches every aspect. And so right now, I have not been at the forefront of what my other nursing counterparts are doing the day in and day out of patient care in the hospital or in the clinic. I've been working on my research But in the back of my mind, especially at the height of the pandemic, I told my kids, I said, mommy may have to stop doing this because she may have to go and take care of some people. And so you always recognize as a nurse, no matter where you branch off in the field, whether it's education, policy, you always have your roots. It all goes back to the patient, patient care. For me, keeping abreast on what's going on from a clinical level, from a research level, now thinking about how is this impacting my population that I'm interested in, and that policy level, how do we move forward from here? That's kind of been that impact. I'm currently serving in the Mm -hmm. National Guard, and we just had our flu shot. And of course, when a vaccine for COVID comes out, they're going to want us to line up and take that. Like, what does that look like from where you sit on the, the kind of thin line of patient care and research. Where's your head with all of that right now? Yeah, so it's interesting because I can say my headspace has somewhat been fragmented in a, in a good way, but then in a how do I balance way because COVID is something that's emerging. We are learning about it as we go. We always talk about building the plane as we fly it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that analogy goes well for how we're handling the pandemic, right? There are you know, infectious disease experts who they understand all this. There are clinicians who've been doing this kind of work or researchers who've been doing this, but yet it's still novel, right, to the vast majority of us. And so my headspace is in that, how do we take care of the patients, 
you how do we prevent right what what kind of things can we do to help prevent and safeguard how do we take care of those who have been affected by covid and then what about those who are dealing with the aftermath of covid what does that look like and so i'm thinking from that clinical perspective prevention how do i help people stay healthy and build a good foundation how do we encourage people to go and seek care and then how do we educate people and as a military service member too you know at what point like you said with vaccines does that take effect with us you know are we first in line are we second in line how as a provider and a leader how do i demonstrate confidence in the healthcare system and in the scientific community and so thinking about all those things where i stand personally where i stand as a military leader and as a scientist and as a clinician and sometimes those frame of references all line up and sometimes they may be a little bit different and where am i you know going to go and move forward in that so one thing i admire about you is you are laser focused very to the point about a lot of things and i know you think you talk around <laughs> things but you're to the point about the things that matter and i wanted to know when you made your decision to pursue a phd was that always like a given in your path or was there a light bulb moment or one interaction with a particular person that inspired you to continue so interestingly i think that situation and many others it's kind of i can see that laser focus because i look back but in the moment the pathway forward is not necessarily clear It's like you have this acorn, right? <laughs> and you know it's going to manifest into something, but then you see this oak tree eventually. And so for me, I would say it started I was attending a ceremony, a graduation ceremony at Michigan. I don't even remember who was graduating, but I saw the doctoral students or graduates walking in their robes, and I just kind of thought that was cool. And I said, "One day, I'm going to get my PhD. And it was kind of just this thought that was out there and maybe God just dropped that <laughs> in me to say, "Yep, here's a seed that I'm planting." And it was there. And then as I went on to get my masters, there was a professor there who uh she was just phenomenal and I'd say she looked like me in terms of being female and her ethnic background. And I hadn't seen many people like her. in the navy. Yeah, you know, she was a retired navy captain, African American female PhD, and she was just so poised, spot on, energetic, and she loved research. And my classmates say, "Oh my goodness, that is so you." And I could see myself in her. Now, we never formed a mentorship relationship, but she gave me this view of I can do that, and maybe I want to do that. And then it wasn't until several years later on in my career that as I was doing patient care and recognizing that I started to have a lot of questions that we didn't have answers for. And from a place of how do I help my patients with this, but then also how do we fix this from a policy perspective? And I started talking to other researchers. And just having those conversations and exposure was I think this is something I want to do. I can do that. And here I am. I love what you said about someone who inspired you almost as a mentor that even to this day she doesn't know it. 
She has no idea <laughs> that she to write her a letter, <laughs> right? Right. But imagine how many others observed her walking across that stage, observed her speaking, that were inspired by her. And I believe that we all hold that place in people's lives. One interaction, one opportunity to say something positive that someone observes and they don't see all your baggage. They don't see all, all the issues that you may be dealing with. They see your accomplishments and that's really important. What are the benchmarks of success for a service member? Physical fitness, we know. Whatever your military occupational specialty is that you are competent at that level to be certified as trained or go through an evaluation where you have a go, no go. That's another point of anxiety. Annual evaluations, whether you're an officer or enlisted personnel, that can be a point of anxiety. That's good and interesting. When you just said that, the last part I thought about was something my father always said, if it's to be, it's up to me. And as I was starting my PhD journey, and it was a rough and rocky rough and rocky points, I said, I'm going to make my PhD manifesto. (laughs) And so this was basically my list of all these affirmations or things I could go to when it got tough. And some of them I remember offhand and not, but one that often comes to mind is no one can do it for me, but I can't do it alone. Mm. And I think about that when it gets tough in I'm just getting deep in the data or how do I get through this? And no one can do the writing for me, right? Major plagiarism. No one can do the thinking for me. I can't delegate the things that are my responsibility. But that doesn't mean I have to suffer in silence, that I have to make sure everything is perfect until I present it to the world, or that I have to just suck it up and just make it work, shipmate. No, I have to do my part. But where I have weakness, there's somebody else who's really strong in that. And so I've learned, don't sit there and struggle with this. Go talk to the expert. They probably know who I need to talk to. Or maybe I have a friend who helps me think this through. Or maybe I don't feel like writing, but I know I need to write. And so I call a friend and on the other side of the screen, she's writing too, and we do it together. Or mm, I need to make a connection with this group and I don't know anybody in this circle. Well, I have a mentor who does and they connect me. And so I come back to that. And then I come back to something a classmate told me, it always gets done. When I'm in the throes of, oh my goodness, how am I going to meet this deadline? It always gets done. It always gets done. And looking back at my past success to, to say, I can do it again. What's to stop me from doing it the next time? You know, I can do it. Being prepared to walk through those open doors as they come. And something else I tell myself is it will get done. It will be great. And you will be okay. In the moment, it doesn't feel that way. Like, I'm not going to get this done. It will get done. It will be great because you're going to put forth excellence. And it'll be okay in the end. And so... A few, of, a few of those are what come to mind as I reflect back on and walk through the journey. And I can apply that to many things, whether it's a, a new position, you know, and leading people, 
Nobody can do it for me. I have to do the leading, but you don't lead alone. You know, the clinical care, no one can do it for me, right? I, I'm that patient, I'm responsible to them, but I don't do it in a vacuum. I work with a multidisciplinary team. And I think that probably stands out to be more than anything else. Thank you for that. I, I know that displaying confidence for leaders, especially military leaders, is really important. We have an idea in our mind of, of what a general looks like and what an officer looks like. But we're human, we're people. Mm-hmm. And we wake up every day with the intention of doing well, serving others, accomplishing the mission. But when it gets hard, having those conversations internally to tell yourself that it will get done, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's really important. It's really important for your mental well-being. It's really important for your ability to support others long-term and sustainably who need your support, who need to look up to you and be confident that it will get done. It will be okay, right? Mm -hmm. So what do you know that you'll be able to do once you defend your dissertation, wear your robe and you're hooded? What's the next step for you? Disseminating the work right? Disseminating the work from my research and getting that out there to the scientific community, getting it out there to the practitioners, getting it out there to the leader. And I think also bridging that gap between research, policy, and practice. Because in each of our silos, so to speak, we all want to do the right thing. Everybody's in it to help someone. Rarely does anyone go to work saying, I want to be a miserable person. People are doing their best. And so, you know, sometimes we, in our academic silos, in our clinical silos, in, you know, the line community silo, but I hope to be that person in whatever capacity that is in the military, is to be able to speak across disciplines and across aisles to say, here's the research that we're doing. How does my research impact other research? How can I build upon others' knowledge and create new knowledge? And say, here's some ways we can ask some other questions that we need to do something about. And then communicating that to the policymakers and understanding what's practical, what's going to be adopted. How do I bridge those relationships, giving them the data that they need to make those decisions. And then communicating with the clinicians and the healthcare providers to say, yeah, we're, we're at the deck plate. <laughs> you know, that all sounds good in theory, but here's what people are going through. But being able to translate to them, you know, here's what we're finding. Here's some practical ways that you can make this happen. And, you know, of course, communicating with our line and operational community, helping us to see that we're all on the same team, And sometimes that's hard when we have competing priorities. And so I think next steps for me is being in a place and position to utilize those skill sets for us to meet the mission. And as much as as your work and your pursuit right now is a personal pursuit and you're one person on this path, someone will see you walk across that stage. Someone will listen to you give a talk and you'll be that that silent mentor that you don't even know that you touched them and you inspired them 
on a path and on a journey of their own moving forward. So Commander Melissa R. Troncoso, thank you for joining us here on The Third Lieutenant. Thank you. Keep doing what you're doing. Great work. Ma'am, sir, thank you again. There's a method to this work. During this podcasting journey, I hope you will continue to join me, analyze formulas for success. Next month, join me as we hear about another service member's pathway to success right here on The Third Lieutenant. October is Depression and Mental Health Screening Month. This message has been brought to you by Manscaped, Spa for Men pop-up where grooming and kings meet. If you're experiencing a crisis or have a friend or family member in crisis, call 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. Press the number one for the military crisis line or text 8382. Five, five. I say again, that's eight tree, eight, two, five, five. From our friends at a man's cave, a spa for men pop up. Until next time, stay balanced and walk in peace. <laughs>